Thank you, Anglin. All right, let me start by saying I was here for the first service and the World Cup was happening. Please do not spoil it for me. Um, I am staying off my phone. I'm not checking anything, so I'm going home and I'm going to watch the World Cup. So go, Croatia. Don't spoil it, please. Um, here's what we've got. We are in the second the second week of a two-week mini-series on the book of Jonah. It's called A Story About Us. Um, last week, we looked at Jonah chapter 1, and this week, we're going to do chapters 2, 3, and 4. So we're going to kind of have to hurry, um, but it's all right. You ready? All right. Uh, chapter 1, here's a quick two-minute recap. Uh, Jonah chapter 1, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and Jonah... Um, gets called by God to go to Nineveh. Nineveh is, a, Jonah's a prophet in northern Israel. Nineveh's 500 miles east. So Jonah gets called by God to go east to Nineveh. Instead, Jonah gets on a boat and he heads to Tarshish, which is 2,500 miles west. So he goes in the opposite direction, not just a little bit, but way opposite direction, right? Jonah's not just running away from Nineveh, he's also running away from God. And he tells us this a couple times. The author tells us, Jonah tells the sailors that he's trying to flee from God. Um, but he can't. He can't get away from God. In fact, he gets on that boat and the Lord causes this huge storm. And we're told that the storm gets bigger and it gets bigger. And then Jonah decides, he knows that this storm is about him. He knows that it's his fault. And he decides instead of turning towards God and saying, God, I'll go to Nineveh, he says, you know what, sailor buddies? Throw me into the sea. Throw me into the Mediterranean Sea. Jonah knows and the sailors know that this will kill him. He's choosing that instead of turning towards God. So he's thrown into the sea. The sailors don't want to do it. They're reluctant, but they end up doing it. And then the grace of God at the end of chapter 1 is that God sends this giant fish to swallow up Jonah. Not to kill him, but to rescue him. And Jonah lives in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That's chapter one. If you remember from last week, our two big takeaways from chapter one. First is that like Jonah, we often know what God wants us to do. It was super clear to Jonah. God said, go to Nineveh. And I'm not talking in our life. I'm not talking about big things like who to marry or where to work or where to live. I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm talking about the, the more simple stuff, the more obvious stuff. We know that God wants us to love our neighbors as ourselves. We know that God wants us to be welcoming, to be kind, to be gracious, to be forgiving. We know these things. And yet, we don't always choose to do those things. Oftentimes, our disobedience is not as blatant as Jonah's. It's not like God is saying 500 miles that way and we're going 2,500 miles that way on a boat. Instead, we're, we're making these small compromises and it's like we're stepping away from God's call. We're making this minor, minor compromise, this minor decision to not do what, God, what we know God wants us to do. And even when we've taken so many of those steps that it's as if we've given up on God, like Jonah had. The second main point from last week, Jonah chapter 1, is that God does not give up on us. It's, just some, it's simply not something that God does. God doesn't do that. So that's chapter 1, and it ends with Jonah in a big fish. Chapter 2, Jonah is in that fish for the whole time. He's inside the fish for all of chapter 2. And 
finally, inside the fish, Jonah is crying out to God. He's praying for the first time. Because you remember chapter one, he runs, he gets on a boat, there's a huge storm, he goes overboard. None of this time does he ever say a single word to God. Finally, in chapter two, he finds himself in the belly of a fish. This is about as dark as it can get. And he finally cries out to God. He repents. He says, God, I'm sorry for going my own way. I want to go your way. And chapter two ends with this verse. Check it out. Uh, Verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Yes. Ew. That's, that's not an actual picture. We didn't have an actual photograph. It's an artist rendering. Um, but it's, this is pretty gross, right? Jonah gets vomited up onto dry land. I was thinking about it this week that even though this is gross, it's not the most disgusting way that Jonah could have gotten out of the fish onto dry land. <laughs> right? Yes. So Jonah can be thankful. Thank God for that. Jonah can thank God for that. Um, that's chapter two. Right? Jonah, Jonah chapter 1 ends with Jonah in the fish. Jonah chapter 2 ends with Jonah covered in fish vomit on the shore. Chapter 3 starts in this really interesting way. If you remember the first words of the entire story, the first words of the, the story of Jonah were, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. And then God says, go to Nineveh and preach against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Chapter 3, listen to this. It sounds similar. It says, then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. So it's the exact same beginning, except it says a second time. I love this. I love this uh, a second time. It's as if God is saying to Jonah, hey, Jonah, you remember when you were back at home and I said, go to Nineveh? And instead, you got on that boat, and you headed for Tarshish, and then the storm came, and it got really crazy, and then you asked your sailor buddies to chuck you overboard, and they did, and then that fish came and swallowed you up, and then it vomited you up onto shore. You remember all that? Well, would you like a second chance, Jonah? Right? It's it's this beautiful picture of God saying, not, not Jonah, you get a pass, not saying, oh, I asked you to go to Nineveh last time, but that didn't work out for you. Let's, let's, find, let's find a better fit for you, right? It's not like he gets a waiver from doing what God has asked him to do. No, instead, he gets a second chance to obey God, a second chance to do what he knows God wants him to do. So God says, go to Nineveh again. And this time Jonah does. And he walks into the city of Nineveh. Remember, the city of Nineveh, it's the capital of the Assyrian Empire, And it's one of the largest cities, if not the largest city in the world at this point. It's 60 miles across. um, And we're told it would be a three days journey to walk across it. And Jonah, he walks for one day into the city. So a third of the way across, about 20 miles. And as he walks, he preaches this very short sermon over and over and over again. It's five Hebrew words that he says. When we translate it to English, it's eight words. And he just says it over and over. Here's what he says. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And then he says it again. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He just keeps repeating it, right? You would think, you would think that this might not be the most effective sermon, right? You would think, imagine yourself in Nineveh, you're a Ninevite, and all of a sudden you see this Israelite prophet 
uh, recently, he was vomited up by a fish, and he's walking through your city, and he just keeps saying the same thing over and over. He keeps saying that your city's going to be overthrown in 40 days, and he won't shut up about it. You would think that people might look at him and either shrug it off, or they might chuckle, uh, they might point and laugh, they might talk to their friends about it, they might get angry, right? They might want to, you know, kind of lock the guy up, seems kind of nuts, but remember, Jonah, the story of Jonah, it's this story of extremes. It's this story where someone's going to run 200 or 2,500 miles away from God. It's this story where someone's going to choose to get chucked into the Mediterranean Sea rather than turn towards God. It's this story where this giant fish is going to swallow someone up. It's this story of these big extremes. And so in that vein, listen to the extreme response in Nineveh. This is chapter 3, verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, all of them, all of the Ninevites, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. So this fasting means they weren't eating or drinking. And this putting on sackcloth, it's like wearing these, uh, these itchy clothes. It's like a burlap, it's like putting on a burlap bag, right? These are signs of repentance. What happens is Jonah goes into Nineveh, he preaches this awful sermon, and everybody, everybody repents. Everybody. If I came here with a five-word sermon, you might think, you might think, sweet, you know, going home early. But you might also think, you probably would think, well, Nick just, he threw in the towel, right? He got lazy this week, and he's decided he's just going to preach these five words. That's it. But Jonah does this, and every single person repents. But wait. It gets even better, even more extreme. Listen to this, verse 6. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. So the king, remember the king from last week, the king gets up off his throne. He takes off his royal robes. He's kind of saying, I've given up my kingship, and I'm going to sit down in the dust, right? And then he says this. He, he gives this, uh, issues this proclamation. He says, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. It's not just the people who repent. It, it stretches even to the animals. And it's not like this was a thing. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, you got all these examples of animals repenting. No, this is, this is the author, uh, and this is the story of God where it's, we're saying this is extreme. This is the most extreme repentance. Five words, and the entire city, including the animals, repent. And then it happens. It happens at the end of chapter 3. God sees this repentance from the city of Nineveh, and God decides not to overthrow them not to destroy the city. The sermon, it worked. Right? It's a miracle. It's a Christmas miracle. <laughs> and Jonah should be ecstatic. He just preached five words, and it turned out to be literally the most effective sermon in the history of time. Right? It worked, and it's this massive turnaround for Jonah. He was in the belly of the fish, and now he's preaching this, this amazing, you know, revival. 
And the story could end there. That's the end of chapter three. And it could definitely end there. It's a happy story. It's got a happy ending. It's this fairy tale ending, right? And it would be a great story. It would be the story about, about second chances. It would be the story where you've got this character that's going away from God. He turns towards God. God rescues him. And uh, then God uses him to do this, this miraculous thing. The God of second chances. It'd be great. But it doesn't end there. There's a chapter four, and chapter four gets a little dark. So uh, remember, Jonah has just witnessed this extreme revival through his preaching. And in chapter four, verse one, but to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you're a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. Wait. Wait, what? Jonah is angry that God is not going to overthrow the people of Nineveh. Jonah is angry that God has decided to, to be compassionate. You see, Jonah has a problem with Nineveh. Remember that, that Nineveh is, is a threat to the people of Israel. Remember that the people of Nineveh, they're known for being brutal and ruthless. They're known for wanting to conquer the whole world. And so it's not too much of a stretch to think that both Jonah and the original audience who's first hearing this story uh, several centuries before Jesus people of Israel, it's not a stretch to think that these people might have wanted the story to end differently. They might have wanted Nineveh to be overthrown. These are the bad guys, right? And so when Nineveh actually repents and God decides not to overthrow them, Jonah responds in what is actually a really comical way. Seriously, God? God, this is why I didn't want to come in the first place. This is why I got on that boat to go to Tarshish. Ah, I knew it, God. I knew you were going to be gracious and compassionate. Why can't you just give them what they deserve? God, when I preach fire and brimstone, I want fire and I want brimstone. I don't even know what brimstone is, but I want it, God. <laughs> right? And you have to go get all compassionate and merciful and forgivey. God, they're Ninevites. They're Ninevites. You're going to let them live? Well, well, then fine. You should just kill me. Right? Remember, it's a story of extremes, and Jonah is definitely being extreme here. He's being extremely dramatic. And it's funny. It, it reads really funny. It's, it's theological satire. It's a commentary on, on every exclusive, narrow-minded view of God's grace. Jonah, you see, Jonah doesn't understand the, the breadth of the grace of God. He's experienced the grace of God. He certainly has, right? He was rescued from the middle of the Mediterranean Sea by being swallowed by a fish sent by God. He's experienced the grace of God, but he still doesn't understand the extent of that grace. It's as if he wanted God's grace to be big enough to rescue him but not so big that it would rescue the Ninevites, right? 
those other people, those people who are different. You see, in Jonah's mind, God had simply gone and loved too many people, or, or maybe the wrong kind of people. God, can't they just get what's coming to them? God, they, they deserve your judgment. It's Nineveh. Eek. They're not like us. God, you know me. It's, it's me, and it's you, and it's your people, the chosen Israelites. We're in this together, God, but not the Gentiles, and definitely not the Ninevites. The question that's just below the surface all throughout the book of Jonah is this. It's how far can God reach? How far is the reach of God's grace? And Jonah finds out in chapter 1 that God can reach pretty far. God can reach Jonah even when he gets on a boat headed the other direction. God can reach Jonah whether he's asleep or awake. God can reach Jonah even when he makes that darkest choice and chooses to give up rather than turn towards God. And God can reach Jonah with this giant fish. That's a pretty far reach. And here we are three chapters later when Jonah realizes that God can reach even farther, even all the way to Nineveh. And Jonah's angry about it. Many people have pointed out that, that one way of looking at Jonah is as a, as a classic nationalist, right? He believes in Israel. Israel should be number one. They're the chosen children of God. They're not like the Ninevites. They're not like the Gentiles. They're Israel. It's God's people. And his nationalism, maybe it's the subtle kind. It's not like he's, it's not like he's killing the Ninevites. It's not like he's bullying them. He just, he just doesn't want to preach to them. And then when he reluctantly does preach to them, he wants God to still judge them. Right? It's that simple. They're others. He's an insider. He's with Israel. The Ninevites, they're outsiders. They're, uh, in 1954, there's a, there was a Turkish-American psychologist named Musafer Sharif. And uh, he's a researcher. He did this study with a group of boys uh, in Oklahoma, along the Oklahoma-Arkansas border. And what he did is he, uh, he got, gathered this group of boys, about 30 boys, um, and they were identical as far as demographics go. They were white, they were middle class, they were fifth graders, 11 and 12 year olds. Uh, they came from Protestant two-parent households. They didn't struggle academically. These were on paper, these boys are all the same. And he takes these boys and randomly assigns each boy to one of two groups. These two groups don't know about the other group. So they just think, every boy just thinks I'm with this group of about 15 boys. And uh, the researcher, he sends these boys out with some uh, camp counselors into this 200-acre Boy Scout camp. And they live, the groups live separately on this camp for a couple days. And they do some bonding activities. They hike, they swim, they do camp-type stuff. Uh, each group is asked to come up with a group name, and they do. One group calls themselves the Rattlers. The other group calls themselves the Eagles. Uh, they create these team or these uh, flags for their group. They create some T-shirts. It's fun. It's like summer camp. Then after a few days, the researchers bring these two groups together. And so now it's no longer just, hey, I'm out here with a group of boys and we're having fun. Now it's, we're the eagles and they're the rattlers. 
It's us versus them. The researchers have them do these competitions. They play baseball against each other. They do some tug-of-war type stuff. And almost immediately, both groups of boys start taunting and name-calling the other group. They've got this, this mentality that now it's a competition. Things escalate pretty quickly. In fact, after a short while, the, uh, the rattlers steal the eagle's flag and they burn it. Yes, they burn the other side's flag. The, the um, eagles then retaliate and they come into the rattler's camp and they just trash it. They chuck beds over. They end up stealing some stuff. One day, one group shows up early for lunch and just gorges themselves, eats all the food, not because they're extra hungry, but because they don't want the other group to get any food. So they eat it all. It's us versus them. Things turn physical. They get physically violent. They have to be separated. At the end of the week, when it's time to go home, they refuse to get on the same bus as each other. gets kind of crazy. Days later, these boys are, are asked a series of questions about everyone that participated, and without exception, they all rate members of their own group much higher on every level than members of the other group. Without exception, the Rattlers, of course, were way better. Oh, he was a Rattler, yeah. He's smarter, better looking, right? Stronger, more humble, yeah. Right? It's this classic insider-outsider mentality. We're the Rattlers. They're the Eagles. They're not like us. We're better than them. This goes across the board. That was Oklahoma-Arkansas border in 1954. But it was also Israel a couple centuries before Christ. This is Jonah, too. We are Israel. We're not Nineveh. We're insiders. God's grace, it's for us. It's not for them. Remember the story of Jonah. It's a story about Jonah, and it's a story about Israel, and it's a story about us. And here's the sad and awkward truth, is that we can be just like this. We're Protestants. We're better than those Catholics. We're Christians. We're better than those Muslims, better than those atheists. We're Democrats or we're Republicans. We're, we're on the inside. There's no room for the others here. We're Americans. We take care of our own. We're white. We're heterosexual. We're rich. We're employed. We're educated. God's grace is for us, not them. The privileges, they're for us, not them. This sounds, and I see it in your face, this sounds really offensive. Really offensive, and it should. It should feel really offensive. But if you look online, if you look at the news, if you take a few minutes to observe the world around you, this is the reality. There was an article in SACB this week about uh, the rising hate crime rate in California. I don't know if you saw it article on Monday, and then they kind of retouched on it on Thursday. Here's an excerpt. It says, the number of hate crimes reported in California surged more than 17% between 2016 and 2017. 
according to new data released Monday by the State Department of Justice. The third straight year, third straight year of double-digit increases. It goes on to give a few details. It says crimes perpetrated against people on religious grounds accounted for the largest increase. These are not crimes against Christians. Anti-Muslim, anti-Islamic, and anti-Jewish hate crimes rose by 21%. Incidents involving a person's real or perceived sexual orientation jumped nearly 19%. Race-related crimes increased 16% year over year. It's an insider-outsider mentality. God's grace is for us. It's not for them. The privileges are for us. It's not for them. But God, God has this message for Jonah, and it's a message for Israel, and it's a message for me and you. God does this, this experiential object lesson with Jonah. So remember Jonah chapter 4, he's angry. He's angry that God has been compassionate towards Nineveh, and he's sitting outside of the city of Nineveh. He's in the desert. It's super hot, and he's overlooking the city of Nineveh just being grumpy. And it's really, really hot. And uh, the... Uh, God grows up this plant next to Jonah. It's a gourd, and the gourd has these massive leaves, and so these leaves provide shade for Jonah. And so Jonah's out there in the desert. These leaves grow up over the top of him, and Jonah says, we're, we're told that Jonah was very happy about the gourd, right? This is right after we're told that Jonah was very angry about God's compassion towards the city of Nineveh. Now we find out that Jonah is very happy about the gourd. And so he, he's happy about the gourd. He's sitting there, and he falls asleep overnight. The next morning, God sends this worm. And this worm eats the, the roots. It starts to eat the gourd, and the gourd withers and dies. Right? So now, no more shade for Jonah. To, to make God's point even more, it gets even more hot. God makes it really, really, really hot. Sends this hot wind, not like a cool breeze, but this hot wind, and Jonah can't escape it. The plant's now gone, he's in the hot sun, he's ready to faint, and he says again, it would be better for me to die than to live. And, and here's what God said, this is verse 9. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the gourd? Right? Is it right for you to be angry about this plant? And Jonah responds in classic Jonah form, it is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Right? Who's Jonah thinking about? He's thinking about himself, right? This plant came over. He had some shade. It felt nice. The plant's gone. He's hot. He's tired. He's grumpy. He's thinking about his own comfort. He's thinking about himself. And then God responds. Well, let me say this. He's thinking about himself. It, and he's assuming it's all about him, and we kind of do this too, right? Even the name of this book, my wife pointed this out to me earlier this week, the name of this book, we call it the book of Jonah. The original author didn't name the book. We've come in and we've said, well, let's call this the book of Jonah. But what if instead it's a story about Nineveh, right? What if instead we've said, yeah, this story's all about Jonah, but what if instead God cares more about Nineveh? Listen to the last two verses. The Lord said, you have been concerned about this gourd. Though you did not tend it or make it grow, it sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, 
in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. God is confronting Jonah about his priorities. You care about the wrong things, Jonah. I just spared 120,000 people in Nineveh and many animals. These, this phrase uh, that God uses, it says, people who don't know their right from their left. Some scholars have said it's talking about children there that literally don't know their right from their left. Others have said it's um, talking about people who've been unable to make moral judgments. But either way, God is, is calling Jonah out, right? You care about yourself and this silly plant, but it's not about you. I care about Nineveh. The ones that you see as outsiders. Jonah, my grace, it's for the outsiders. And then the story just ends. It's, it's you know, season over, series over, fade, quick fade to black, right? And there is no season two. It's just the end of the book right there. It ends with this question. And we don't know how Jonah will respond. It's a cliffhanger. Will Jonah finally get it? Will he finally understand that God's grace, it's not just for Israel, not just for what he sees as the insiders? Will he finally see that this insider-outsider mentality, it's, it's not helpful? Will he drop his selfishness, his prejudice, his nationalism? We don't know. The author leaves it as a question. Why would the author do this? I wonder if it's left with a question because... We get to decide. Remember, it's a story about Jonah and Israel and Nineveh and us, and we get, to, we get to choose how we will participate in the rest of the story. Will we just read it and move on? Oh, yeah, cool story about Jonah, and there's a plant, and there's a whale, and that was a couple thousand years ago. It doesn't have anything to do with us. Will we hear about the, the hate crime numbers going up, and will we say, wow, that's awful? I'm glad I don't have any part of that. Nothing I can do about that. I hope it gets better. Or will we recognize that God, God's grace reaches way farther than we could imagine? Will we see that God's grace is for the outsiders? Will we fight against our own selfishness and care about the things that God cares about? Who is it for you who is the outsider for you? A lot of times in this, in this uh, recent political climate, the outsider is someone with different politics than you. Maybe that's it. Maybe the outsider is uh, someone with a different religious belief. Maybe it's someone who makes different choices about how they spend their time or their money. Maybe it's someone who, who dresses differently or talks differently than you expect them to. Maybe it's someone from a different country or a different social class. Who's the outsider? Here's the good news, the gospel. Gospel means good news. Here's the gospel from the book of Jonah. God's grace is for them. God's grace is for the outsiders. And we should let that affect how we live. That should affect how we live, how we interact with people, where we spend our time and our money. See, Jonah ends with a question because we get to decide how to participate. We get to decide what's next. 
We get to decide if we'll participate with God and God's story. It's up to you and it's up to me. Would you, would you pray with me? God, we need you. We're desperate for you. We need you every hour, every minute. God, would you help us understand how close you are and how far you reach? And may that affect the people that we are and how we interact with our families and our friends, with the world around us, with our neighbors and our coworkers, with our enemies. God, help us care about what you care about. We pray these things in the name of your son, Christ. Amen. Would you stand up with me for a minute?